0: Lately, I've found myself struggling to understand this particular phase of the pandemic. On Monday, a federal judge voided the transportation mask mandate. But at the same time, both from people I know getting sick, news stories, and tracking data, COVID cases are ticking up. So I called up Catherine Wu. She's a reporter for The Atlantic, and COVID is one of the things she covers. All right, I think I need to ask you the question... Are we in a wave?
1: (laughs) Oh, I think that invites another question, which is, what is a wave?
0: Catherine has a PhD in microbiology and immunobiology. Her COVID coverage is indispensable. It's infused with a level of understanding and rigor that you don't always find in health news. It's not really a term with a
1: formal epidemiological or mathematical definition. It's <laughs> almost a kind of you know it when you see it sort of thing. But you can imagine it is kind of a, a deviation away
0: from the norm. Being able to see that deviation, to quantify it, takes data. And in the U.S., good data about COVID cases has gotten harder and harder to come by
1: we are kind of in a a data disaster right now as one person put it to me recently the way that we track waves is generally by tracking cases uh, documented infections and the way that we've done this over the past couple years is to test people
0: but now a lot of community testing sites have shut down some people are testing themselves at home but that data almost never gets reported to public health departments And the CDC has changed the way it monitors COVID surges. It's sort of like we're now fumbling in the dark. Today on the show, how much should that worry us? Can we still fight COVID without a crystal clear picture of the data? I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and you're listening to What Next TBD, a show about technology, power, and how the future will be determined. Stick around. Officially, the U.S. averaged about 37,000 new COVID cases a day in the past month, according to the CDC. But when I asked Catherine where to look to get the big picture of how things are going, she said it's really complicated. We're
1: definitely limited by what data we have. And this is a problem, right? Because data is what tells us to react or be proactive so that things don't get worse. And so there's a little bit of decision paralysis right now. I I guess I would not put a lot of stock in the absolute numbers right now, like this county has picked up X number of cases this week. Okay, that's fine. I know that's probably an underestimate, but if that number is triple this week than what it was last week, It doesn't really matter what the absolute numbers are, just that there was a really steep increase. And so the trend line is still really informative at this point.
0: Right. Like, I live in in New York. I live in Brooklyn, Kings County. And so I have become accustomed to going on the New York State app and I look at the test positivity rate of where I live, and my county is 2.12% before I came in to talk to you. What do you do with that number? Would you be like, yeah, that's just like, that's not... That's not hard data.
1: That absolute number, oh, that's so tough because, you know, we need to think about what's the numerator and what's the denominator. The denominator is so messed up right now because not enough people are testing with the tests that actually get reported. And certainly we are not getting anywhere near a good enough handle on all the negatives that are probably being gotten at home um, and in a bunch of other settings.
0: No one is reporting their negatives if they're testing themselves. The Biden administration made a move to prioritize home testing. I just got my second round of home COVID tests in the mail. And before I talked to you, I had no idea that I was supposed to tell somebody if I tested negative, which which I have many, many, many times. Um, are we using home tests correctly? Or are they just this thing that we now have that actually are not contributing to this overall data picture?
1: You know, I I certainly don't want to paint home tests as not useful because you having that information is helpful for you. And if you were ever to test positive, like hopefully that would be super quick information that would tell you, hey, you should isolate for a little bit and not infect the people around you. That's fantastic. But yeah, I mean, it, do, it does lead to this paucity of data um, and that does create a, a bind. And yeah, it, I mean, it's really complicated. And so, you know, this is not necessarily me saying like, tsk, tsk, everyone who hasn't reported your test results. It's understandable. Like I, I haven't really been doing it either. This was sort of the expectation for home tests that the whole process of self-diagnosis and understanding what your infection status is would be brought to the individual level. But yeah, it does come at the cost of putting us in the dark in terms of uh, where we stand with this virus
0: on a community level. Let's talk a little bit about the universe of data that does exist. Who is collecting data on COVID cases right now? How are they getting it? Public
1: health departments across the country are still collecting what data they can. You know, if there's a community testing site, a lot of those samples are still going to be uh, funneled into sequencing. Cases are still being reported. Hospitals are going to keep doing routine testing and other healthcare settings are going to sort of be funneling that data into the same thing. The goal is probably to move to something like we do for flu surveillance. But it's, it's a little weird because we have sort of transitioned to this Like off season model um, before the pandemic is really over. Uh, The pandemic's not over. (laughs) And so I think a lot of people have said, is this premature? What are we doing? How are we going to get a handle uh, on what's going on? Like flu is predictable. We know when flu season is. We're still trying to get a handle on COVID's natural patterns. We don't know if it's going to be, you know, a summer surge and a winter surge every year, if it's going to be all over the place. so unpredictable, and so this is actually a really crucial data gathering time, which makes our current systems kind of incongruous with that goal. That said, um, you know I do want to point to wastewater surveillance as being still really interesting
0: right now. Wastewater surveillance is what it sounds like: measuring sewage to see if people are shedding coronavirus RNA in their feces. It can help detect whether infections are increasing or decreasing in a community, but it's not used everywhere. That is the huge flaw with wastewater surveillance at this point.
1: It is distributed really unevenly. Uh, The CDC actually has a page um, sort of mapping out the different wastewater surveillance sites on its website. And you can see just how patchy it is. There are states where there is no wastewater surveillance whatsoever. So looking at that, You could sort of still average it out to a national trend, but knowing how local and patchwork this pandemic has been, uh, in this country especially, that means we can't rely exclusively on wastewater surveillance to give people a good sense of the risk uh, in their community at any given time.
0: I want to talk a little bit about how this Testing infrastructure and data infrastructure has changed over the past year. The, the CDC used to prioritize cases and positive tests to sort of determine the COVID-19 threat level. And then it, it changed the way it measures things. I wonder if you could explain that to me a little
1: Right, so this was a huge shift a few weeks ago. So in the old system, the priority is exactly as you said, you know, um, how many new cases are being detected in a community, you know, over the past week? Is it like 50 new cases per 100,000 people? Uh, If you go above that level, you know, maybe it's time to mask. It was very transmission focused. If the virus is causing lots of new cases, people should really be taking precautions. The idea that the CDC has been putting forth as of late is we should be moving away from that because on average, thanks in large part to immunity through vaccination, the virus has just become less threatening, especially to the average vaccinated American. Maybe we should focus less on transmission and just preserving healthcare infrastructure. So to that end, now the new guidelines are separated into low, medium, and high uh, for you know these community COVID-19 levels. And people are not recommended to mask until new cases hit a threshold of 200 per 100,000 people wow. over a, a seven-day period and Hospitals are starting to fill up and beds are starting to get uh, a little scarce. So it's not even just that transmission levels would be enough. It's transmission and hospital capacity. That is a huge priority shift, a huge move of the goalpost to the priority really is stopping severe disease.
0: Perhaps there's no place that exemplifies that shift more than in the CDC's transmission maps, a tool that had helped people visualize various COVID risks. The original way the CDC was mapping out, you know, what's kind of
1: low, moderate, substantial, high transmission, we had this map that was painted in like blue, yellow, orange, red. It was very, very, very colorful. Um, The week that those thresholds changed, almost the entire map flipped to this really peaceful color of green, showing that, you know, most people don't need to mask anymore. Everything's fine. It was incredibly
0: dramatic. I wanted to understand the thinking behind the agency's decision. I asked Catherine if there was an argument that the shift, dramatic as it was, was reasonable. This is complicated.
1: I do see the argument in principle, right? We've known for quite some time now that... We are not going to eradicate or eliminate this virus. Um, It spreads very quickly. Our vaccines are incredible, but they're not perfect blockades against all infection. The virus has too many animals it can move in and out of. Uh, It has moved all over the world. Elimination is not really a viable strategy in the short term. And so it's understandable to sort of set our goalposts towards the worst outcomes and trying to preserve healthcare capacity. But... The tricky thing is is setting those benchmarks and saying, okay, well, we're going to focus on hospitalizations. It takes weeks for hospitalizations to start to build up, uh, well into a surge of cases. Uh, you know, it's what scientists call a lagging indicator. If we're waiting that long to react. We're basically accepting that we're probably going to reach, you know, hundreds of deaths a day again, potentially, especially if we don't see a further increase in immunity or, you know, a a lessening in how deadly the virus is. Basically, tying um, our action thresholds to hospitalizations means we're potentially acting way too late to prevent a lot of suffering. And we also know that cases of long COVID can happen well before the hospitalizations appear. And there's really nothing built into the guidelines that addresses that just because we do something for flu doesn't mean that that is the perfect way to handle an infectious disease. If we wait this long to react, if we accept this amount of transition in the community, that's basically asking some of the most high-risk people in our population to sort of bear the burden of the pandemic.
0: Why did this shift happen?
1: There is an understandable desire, I think, you know, people are exhausted. People want to get back to, you know, a semblance of what life was like in 2019. Every policy, um, every instruction to keep transmission low is going to come with a societal cost, a behavioral cost. There is always this balancing of what is our goal and what is the price we're willing to pay to reach it. And the price here is a lot of behavioral action, political will, um, pandemic funds. Um, And, you know, maybe it's not scientifically ideal, maybe it's not epidemiologically ideal, but I I suppose the administration thought about what was feasible, what was realistic, what was palatable for a public that's this exhausted.
0: When we come back, the so what wave. This story with a headline, America is facing down its first so what wave. And I I just keep thinking about that phrase a so what wave. Why do you think we as a country are in that place that there could be this thing approaching and we're kind of shrugging?
1: I think it's a combination of three things. You know, we're not measuring the cases, we're not going to see the cases accumulate. And we're not going to react to them because we have adopted this new stance of, you know, our, our threshold for them is incredibly high. So it's a wave that we may not measure well or react to well. And that is exactly what a, a so what wave is designed to be.
0: What are the potential consequences of acting in this way? Could we go from, you know, blissful ignorance to full hospitals quickly?
1: That's the question now that many people are vaccinated, not enough, but many people are vaccinated and many people have you know, also been infected. We do have a lot of immunity in the community. We have treatments that can help people if they are diagnosed early. We have tests to catch those people early if they're able to access them. And so the idea is we have a lot of tools that can make the average infection with this coronavirus less of a threat. And if we truly are to get to that point you know, where that is true for everyone, then I think we could take our foot off the gas pedal a little bit, but the tests, the treatments, even masks are not distributed evenly. Uh, so the, the sort of idealized picture I just painted, we are part of the way there, but simply having the technology available, that's not the same as saying everyone has access to them, especially the people who are most vulnerable, most high risk, and could most benefit from having those tools at, at the ready.
0: The BA2 variant now makes up about 70 percent of sequenced infections in the U.S. At that proportion, European countries saw their caseloads go up. But it's hard to know if something similar will play out here. The
1: U.S. is not Denmark. The U.S. is not the U.K. You know, certainly there are similarities, but we are our own country. We had our own experience of, you know, the Omicron classic wave. Uh, We have different levels of immunity. We've used a different set of vaccines here. Um, And people have just been behaving very differently. Our experience of the exact same variant is not gonna be exactly the same. And so there are things that could make our wave worse than what's been seen in Europe, and there are things that could make it better. So we are seeing cases go up, and I'm very, very hopeful and reasonably confident that we're not going to see a redux of what happened in January, for instance, with that
0: absolute record shattering wave. I wonder when you talk to researchers and public health professionals or, or even think about this yourself, you have a Ph.D. in uh, immunobiology. Um, do they do you grapple with this dissonance between many people who are are, quote unquote, returning to normal or who certainly want to? and others who are absolutely going to get sick, maybe even die, because we have chosen this model of measuring the virus.
1: Yeah, it's really difficult to think about. And I think for people who are not ready to, you know, get back to whatever normal may have felt like at one point, they're also getting increasingly exhausted and they're feeling increasingly alone. But you know, the other side of this is also so understandable. Like we cannot live as we have lived during the pandemic forever. What we need to find is a middle ground. But I I I hope that people can move away from binary thinking. It's not act like the pandemic is here forever. It's also not act like it's 2019 and the virus was never here. What I try to encourage um, people to think about now is how can we make short-term investments right now, just, you know, bear down a little bit longer, um, you know, get the unvaccinated vaccinated, get the the vulnerable people who need boosters, boosters, um, install ventilation so that, you know, the air is clean enough that we don't have to wear masks all the time. Uh, Things will not ever look like they did in 2019 because the world has changed since then. But that doesn't mean we have to be unhappy and miserable and anxious forever.
0: I think a lot about this story that your colleague, Ed Yong, wrote about cycles of panic and neglect when it comes to epidemics and public health infrastructure in the U.S. And I hear you talking about these short-term investments that could help now. Are there longer-term investments that could make these transitions less bumpy, that that would subject us to more robust data year-round so that We weren't flying blind in in times of great need.
1: Everything I have um, pointed to with, you know, vaccines, ventilation, these I I think are long-term investments in our future. They are things that we can sort of set and forget is maybe the, the better way to say it. You know, if we do these things now... Um, they will last us quite a long time. A vaccine is not something you have to uh, put on and take off every day. Once you install a ventilation system, um, I don't have to walk into a restaurant and be like, turn the ventilation on, it's already running. Um, You know, the best public health interventions are the ones that kind of were in the background, and people don't even have to notice. They actually forget they're there because they're working so well. But to your point about data and making sure that we are keeping eyes on the virus, I think there are big investments that we can make in those respects as well, you know, getting more wastewater surveillance sites online, even sampling wildlife to get a sense of, you know, is this virus moving through different species? There are lots of innovative ways, I think, to to keep tabs on this that we're not tapping into yet because uh, I think, unfortunately, we have accepted a certain level of respiratory virus death in this country on a year-to-year basis and become somewhat numb to it. But I think we have to keep in mind that, you know, Ending this pandemic does not even mean just going back to those levels of flu deaths we had before. We could double that. We could more than double that now that this new virus is here and here to stay.
0: Catherine Wu, thank you so much for your time and, and your reporting.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Catherine Wu covers science for The Atlantic. That is it for our show today. TBD is produced by Ethan Brooks. We're edited by Tori Bosch. Joanne Levine is the executive producer for What Next? And Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer for Slate Podcasts. TBD is part of the larger What Next? family. And we're also part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We will be back on Sunday with another episode. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening.